Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to take a look. This is the last message in our Matthew series, and we're going to take a look at this evening, once again, the righteousness of God, or a righteous God, I should say. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 and following. We're going to read verses 17 through 20 and then verses 43 through 48. So we'll jump over to that passage of Scripture. And uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of, scribes, of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now jump down to verse 43, if you would, please. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on, good, on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time, and I pray that you would... Help us this evening as we gather around your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the work that only you can do. And I ask that I'd be pure and clean before you, that you would give me the strength mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually to be able to, call, to, be able to do what you've called me to do. I thank you for these dear and precious people. I pray that you bless them. And I pray that our church would continue to uh, grow in the things of you. I pray that we'd see more people saved. We'd see more people discipled. Father, we ask you for this. We see more people trained to be able to do the work of the ministry. We ask you for this. And Father, I pray that above everything, you'd be honored and glorified this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This passage, you could break it down like this. Man's righteousness or man's standard versus God's standard. All of us live by certain standards or by a level of goodness. We would use the word goodness. The Bible term is righteousness. All of us live by a certain amount of righteousness. There's a standard that we live by. And Jesus is comparing the righteousness of the world to the righteousness which he possesses and which he gives to every single one that claim his name. So as the scripture teaches us, once you come to know Christ, you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So you say, well, what does that mean? I'm clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Well, when God looks upon you, he does not see your righteousness, but he sees the righteousness of Christ upon you. So he does not see your, if you will, your sinfulness. He sees what Christ has done for you. So you are clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, if God looked upon us uh, uh, for who we really are and what we really are, and if that, was the, uh, if that was the way that we were going to get into heaven, we could never, ever get into heaven. Why? Because the scriptures plainly teach us that all of our goodness or all of our righteousness is really a bunch of filthy rags. It, 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 when it comes to measuring up to God's righteousness, there's no comparison. 
It's like putting a little league team up against a professional baseball team. You know, it'd be, it'd be cute to watch those little guys in T-ball come out there, and then you see all the, those six-foot uh, uh, five, six-foot-two guys, you know, these big, big professional uh, baseball players. Maybe the Phillies get out on the field, and you see these little guys at T-ball. Who do you think is going to win the game? Well, let's hope the Phillies do. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying, right? I mean, there's no comparison. And that's the way our righteousness stacks up to the righteousness of God. And then he goes on and, and Jesus says that we are to live by this righteousness. And living by the righteousness of God is to live according to his standard. So living righteously, if I were to say to you, the Bible tells all of us we are to live righteously according to God's standard. Well, then your question ought to be, okay, pastor, I want to do that, but what does that look like? How do I live according to God's righteousness. And for that fact of the matter is, what is God's righteous standard? Well, as I mentioned to you this morning, his righteous standard is perfection. It's absolute perfection. You say, well, I can't do that. Exactly. That's the reason why Christ came. Because he did it for us. He's the one who lived absolutely, perfectly righteously so that that way we didn't have to because he knew we couldn't. So I want you to take a look at what does it look like. First, I had mentioned to you this morning, your thinking towards the law must be correct. Your thinking towards the law must be correct. And correct thinking, I'm just gonna give you these bullet, bullet uh, uh, rapid fire here, and then we're gonna get into uh, the second point. The correct thinking starts with correct understanding. You have to understand something before you can think correctly about it. You don't have to understand everything about it, but you have to have a little bit of understanding before you can think correctly about it. We mentioned to you that correct thinking understands the fulfillment of the law. Where was that? That was found in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he fulfilled the law for us. I mentioned to you that correct thinking is committed to the commandments of the law, that that uh, we, we don't look at the, the law and, and, and what God commands us to do as something that is restraining. And I gave you that illustration of a soldier living in a war-torn country and a soldier who would lead you through a field that's filled with landmines, but he would lead you to freedom. We wouldn't look at that person as, as uh, saying that we've got to follow their commands as restraining. We would look at their commands and following them to the T as something life-giving, as something that would set us free. That's the way we should look at the Word of God when God commands us to do something or when God commands us not to do something. It's not restraining. It's actually life-giving. It is freeing for us. Why? Because it protects us from the landmines of this world. We also saw, lastly this morning, that correct thinking accepts the righteousness of Christ. Correct thinking accepts the righteousness of Christ and understanding that your righteousness and my righteousness cannot get us into heaven. But secondly, here this evening, if we're going to live righteously, it means that you're think, you think correctly towards the law. But secondly, your conduct is to express true righteousness. Your conduct is to express true righteousness. I want us to go back now to this next section. We covered verses 17 and 20 this morning. I want us to go to verses 43 through 48. Because it's one thing for us to be able to know how to think about the law and and uh, know the way that we ought to view the law. But the Bible is not just theory. 
The Bible is just not for theological knowledge. And we ought to have some theological knowledge, but it's to live it out practically. Christianity is a, is a faith of practical living. It's not something that's supposed to be kept to ourselves. It's not something that, as Paul says, that uh, knowledge should puff us up to make us think that we have uh, a, a better knowledge than somebody, but it's something that is to be lived out. So if we are going to understand the law and understand what God is commanding of this living righteously, then it must be expressed. It must be expressed in our conduct, our behavior. Take a look at verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be therefore perfect, even as your... Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. So you say, what are you telling us, Pastor? That your inward righteousness is to have an outward expression. Your inward righteousness is to have an outward expression. Letter A, if you're taking notes. First, you have a superior righteousness. Now remember, we're talking about the world's righteousness versus divine righteousness. Now before you get a big head and think, wow, Pastor just told me I've got a superior righteousness. That's a good thing. Well, before you get yourself all puffed up, the only reason that we have the capability to be able to live out this righteousness, this kind of righteousness, is because of Christ. That's it. The only reason that we do have a superior righteousness, a righteousness that is above the world's, is because of Christ. In verses 43 and 44 and then 46 and 47, Jesus is comparing these two standards of righteousness. What are they? The world's standard of righteousness. This is what the world says, that, that it's, it's, this is okay. If you live this way, you are a good moral person. You love those who love you. That's the world's standard of righteousness. You are considered a good moral person if you love those who love you. God's standard of righteousness says you love all people no matter if they love you or not. And see, we have to choose what type of righteousness we're gonna live by. Jesus' statement in verse 43, he says, "'Ye have heard that it hath been said, "'Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy.'" Jesus is combating a social attitude right there and a way of living that had been part of the Jewish society for years. This was, this was a, a norm, a social norm for them. But I want you to, to understand something. Just because something is a social norm does not mean that it's right for the Christian. Just because it's accepted in society does not mean that we should do it as believers. I want you to take a look at verse 46 again, if you, if you will. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? See, just because the world says that it's okay doesn't, does not mean that it's right for the believer to behave that way. 
the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the goodness of God has radical implications for the life of the believer, for the behavior or the conduct of the believer. The other day, I was going too slow for somebody. <clears throat> and they decided to greet me. Now, my vehicle is much bigger than their vehicle. And it would have been very easily to nudge them off to the side of the road. But the world says, if they greet you, you ought to greet them. Right? I mean, that, that's, that would just be normal. Hey, look, I mean, even the world would quote, well, do unto others as they would have, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, so that guy must want it back. <laughs> That, that would be a social norm. I'm not saying that that's right or that's even moral to do, but what I'm saying, that would be a social People would say, hey, you know, he deserved it. He got what was coming to him. He was being a jerk. For the believer, we say, wait a second. That's not the way that we're to live. Our behavior, because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our behavior is to be something above that. And for, if we're not careful too many times, we get sucked into the social norms that, well, this is okay, and this is what everybody else does, and so it's tit for tat, and, you know, if I don't, if I don't toot my own horn, then nobody else is going to toot it. I've got to push my way to the top here in the corporate world. I've got to do this and that and the other thing, and I'm going to step on this person to be able to get here because that's what they've done to me, and, oh, wait a second. Wait a second. I thought you were called a Christian. Well, I'm not going to let them walk all over me, Pastor. Well, Jesus did. Says when he was reviled, he reviled not again. I mean, he had all power in the world, in the universe. He's got all power. And all that he would have to do was to, was to just mention one thing, and he could have wiped out his enemies. He could have just said, you know what? You're blind. They would have been blind. You know what? You're struck with leprosy. And from the world's standard, after they had done what they, had did, what they did to an innocent man, as a matter of fact, Pilate even said, this man's innocent. <laughs> the world would have said, he was right in what he did. But see, for us as believers, we're not to live that way. There is to be a, a, there, there is to be a radical difference between the way we believe and the way we act and the way the world acts. See, if you look at verses 43, 46, and 47, that's the way the world acts. And listen now, that's the way worldly people act. They only love those that love them. They only say hi to those, salute those that are part of their tribe. They don't want anything to do with anybody else, only part of their group. That's the way worldly people, Jesus is saying, this is the way the world acts. This is not the way that we are supposed to act. And Jesus, really, what he's doing here is he is literally, he is shattering the rabbinical teachings right in front of them. And the rabbinical teachings, even on love, because the, the, the rabbis and the scribes here and the Pharisees, they were teaching, oh, this is the way that you're to love. And Jesus says, no, this is not the way that you're to love. And by the way, what did Jesus say how the world would know his disciples? What? By the way that we love one another. But now this is not only by the way that we love one another, Jesus is taking it a step further. It's by the way that we love even those who don't love us. 
See, it's easy to talk about this kind of stuff, and it's easy to be able to um, uh, lay out these theological precepts and these principles from the Word of God. It's a whole nother thing to be able to live them out. Take a look at verse 47. He makes another point about this. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? I'll put it to you this way. It's never, the point is, it's never enough that we as believers do the good that the unbelievers do. It is necessary that we do more. It is never enough that we as believers do what the unbelievers do. The good that the unbelievers do. It is necessary that we do more. See, what Jesus is really asking, just through this one verse here, verse 47, it's, it's, it's really um, thoroughly evangelistic. It's an evangelistic strategy, to be honest with you. Because it goes beyond what's expected. And when you treat those who hate you, who despitefully use you, who are your enemies, when you treat those with the kind of love that Jesus is asking and the way that Jesus is asking, it goes beyond what is expected and it's totally opposite of what the world would do. Now listen, eventually that's going to give you an opportunity to be able to share the gospel with someone else. Whether it's that person or people who are noticing so let's bring this down to real life. You're in your workplace. And there is just somebody there that does not treat you the way that you should be treated. You ever have that? Maybe, let's bring, let's, maybe it's a family member. They treat you not the way that you should be treated. Whatever the scenario is, maybe it's your neighbor. They treat you not the way that you should be treated. But wherever you find yourself, you are not to just do what the world would do. You are to go above and beyond that. And that will give us an opportunity to be able to share the gospel. You say, well, that's really hard to do. Yeah, that's why you need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can't do this on your own. It's, look, folks, it's not natural. It's not natural to do that. It's unnatural to do that. And so, therefore, we, don't, we, we fight the flesh and we say, wait a second, there is something here that's much bigger than me. There's something here that's much greater at stake than my reputation and then my feelings and then me getting stepped on. And what's greater than that is the souls of those that are around you that do not know Christ as their personal Savior. But too many times we are so selfish that we, we say, I am not going to be taken advantage of anymore. I am not going to, and you fill in the blank, and I am not going to, and I've just had my fill, and I'm going to give them my two cents, and I'm going to, I've often said, don't give away your two cents because you might be left with nothing. Well, wait a second. Christ says it's totally different. Christianity, it turns everything that we want to do upside down. 
in my flesh, you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to pull off to the side of the road, jump out of my truck, and have a meeting. I wanted to reach out and touch somebody. That's what the flesh wants to do, right? That's not what the Spirit tells us to do. See, now that we've seen the way the the world behaves according to their external righteousness, I want you to take a look at verse 44. You say, well, what does this look like? But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus gives us a vivid illustration of what superior righteousness looks like right here. This is what superior righteousness is supposed to look like. If you, you, have, you have this ability in you, you've just got to surrender to the Lord. It's called fighting the flesh. That's what it is. Jesus says, here, we are to bless, to do good, and to pray. So living righteously according to God's standard looks like this. These are the actions, the behaviors that we're to take. What, okay, but, but what does it mean? Uh, if you're taking notes, just put this down real quick. Bless means to praise, to speak well of. Bless means to praise, to speak well of. To do good means to do well, to be fair or to treat fairly, or to do something beautiful. Pray is to what you would suspect that it would mean. It means to speak to God. Now, what's the negative side? Curse. Those people who hate you. Curse is to wish evil. You ever hear somebody say, you're dead to me? There's some pretty strong words. It's to wish evil. Hate is to abhor Despitefully used is to revile, to threaten, to mistreat, to injure, to harass, to insult, or to accuse. To persecute is to pursue or to cause, to flee, to run after. Okay, so God says, for those people who wish me evil, who abhor me, can't even stand the sight of me, who revile me, who threaten me, who mistreat me, who try and injure me, who harass me, who insult me, who accuse me, who pursue after me or would cause me to flee away, this is how you're supposed to react to them. God says, you are to praise them. You are to speak well of them. <laughs> Wait a second, this person has just totally torn down my character. They've just totally, they've just totally ruined me in the eyes of all these other people. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. This is not what the Bible says, bless, do good, and pray. But pastor, I mean, what are people gonna think of me? That's your problem. That's the reason why you can't do this. Because you're worried about what people think of you. Last time I checked, you're not going to stand before people at the judgment seat. You're going to stand before God Almighty. It matters what he thinks of you, not what others think of you. Now, this is really easy to preach, but it's hard to live. Well, somebody says, man, I just can't, I can't stand the sight of you. Just, just get out of my sight. And somebody comes up, well, what do you think of so-and-so? Man, I saw the way they treat you. Man, I pray for them every day. You know, they're really a good worker. They, they, they've got 
good character when it comes to work. You start finding good things to say about them and, and praise them. It says to do good to them. Wouldn't it be nice to just be able to get them a Christmas gift or a birthday gift? Say, hey, I just... What? what? I don't want your stupid gift. And throw it. And what if they, they destroy the gift I give them? What if they tear it up? What if they... You just do what Jesus tells you to do and let them worry about the rest of it. See, it's easy to talk about, oh, I'm a Christian and I want to live, you know, the Christian life. Is this not what Jesus did? This is a whole lot harder to live out than it is for us just to say, and to say, yeah, this is what we ought to do. So when our enemies curse us, we bless them. We speak well of them. When they hate us, we treat them fairly and we treat them well. When they spitefully use us and persecute us and threaten us and harass us, what do we do? We pray for them. This is what we're supposed to do as Christians. You know what I found? When you pray for somebody that you know that you're having a struggle with and you know that you're having a hard time with and you're trying to fight those feelings because those feelings are real, when they have mistreated you, when they have used you, when they have abused you, when you start praying for that person and truly start praying for that person, it's a whole lot easier to bless them. It's a whole lot easier to do good for them. Jesus says that that's what superior righteousness looks like. Now the question is, do you have that superior righteousness? I'm not looking for an answer. But do you really have that superior righteousness? Oh, it's in you if you know Christ. But are you living it out? See, I believe that if the world saw this kind of true righteousness, that there'd be a whole lot more people that would come to Christ. What I find interesting is that Christians even have a hard time doing this in church. I don't understand how Christians can't get along. We're, we're supposed to have the whole, same Holy Spirit inside of us and how people, they... I've told people in marriage counseling, I've said, the Bible tells you as a husband to be able to, when they say, well, I just don't love my wife anymore or whatever, I say, well, the Bible says that you should love your husband, uh, love, your, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Well, I just can't do that. And I might say, well, the Bible says that you ought to love him like your neighbor. Well, I just can't do that. Well, then how about this? Can you love him like your enemy? Well, I just can't do that. See, God covers all the bases for us the way that we're supposed to be acting. Let me ask you, is this the kind of righteousness that you have? See, what is wonderful here is we just don't have a, a theological argument, but we have letter B in closing this evening. We have a sovereign example. Take a look at verses 45 and 48. Verses 45 and 48. Your conduct or your behavior is to express true righteousness, a sovereign example, verse 45, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Verse 48, be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. See, the Bible of the living God just does not, does not, tell, just does not tell us what to do, but it shows us or it gives us examples and many illustrations of how we are to live as believers. Jesus uses the example of the goodness of God to colorfully illustrate to us what godly righteousness looks like. 
What are you saying to me, Pastor? That the love of God for all people is shown in how he gives good gifts indiscriminately to all. That's what it just told us right there. That God, the love of God for all people gives good gifts indiscriminately to all. So God's provision extends to the whole race and it is not limited by the moral standards people accept. Let me put it to you this way. The point is that God does not limit his blessings to those who only serve him faithfully. Even those who oppose God, even those who hate God, he gives many good things. God is good to all. And since God is good to all, we are to reflect that kind of righteousness. Turn to Psalm 145, verse 9, because I want you to see this, that God does not withdraw his creational kindness. God does not withdraw his creational kindness to the wicked. This doesn't mean that everybody's going to go to heaven. No, they still have to accept the Lord. But God is indiscriminately good to all men. He says it rains on the just and on the unjust. God just doesn't make it rain on the crops of the Christians. It makes it rain on all the crops. He gives breath to all of us, does he not? He gives health to all of us, does he not? So God blesses the just and the unjust in many ways. Take a look at verse uh, 9 of Psalm 144. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. So this is the attitude and behavior that we are to take toward those who show us enmity or those who are our enemies. And this actually shows us that we are sons indeed. But you know, if we're not careful... I want you to think about something in closing here. If we're not careful, we will start to think that, or we'll be tempted to think that this costs us a great deal, but it really doesn't cost God a great deal to be able to do. Friends, we've got to remember that it's because of God's great wrath, uh, God's great love, I should say, that his wrath and destruction are restrained from being poured out on his enemies. It's costing God a great deal. See, this indiscriminate type of love is the type of love that will mark all true disciples of Christ. This is the way that we are to live. Jesus is coming to a close in his discourse here, and he says in verse 48, Be therefore perfect, even as your, heavenly, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Jesus ends his talk here with, this part of the discourse, I should say, with a command. But within this command, there's somewhat of a promise. And the idea is, the way that Jesus stated this is that the disciple can go to the Father to be able to receive what he needs to be able to live the way that he needs to live. You say, what do you mean by this perfectness? God says we're to be perfect. You know what he's saying? He's saying there is to be no limit on our goodness towards those who hate us. There is to be no limit 
on your care for those who would despitefully use you. You are to be perfect. Here he's saying, you are to be mature in your righteous behavior. You are to bless, you are to do good, and you are to pray for your enemies. You know what I like about this? Is that no matter how far along the path of Christianity you are, there's still something to aim for. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. In this passage, there's still something for you to aim for. Because to be quite honest with you, there are times when we may do this perfectly. But there's other times where we fail, is it not? God was the sovereign example for us. When did God do good for us? The Bible tells us when. While we were yet still his enemies. Christ didn't come and die because the world loved him. Christ came and died because the world hated him. If our sovereign example has done that for us, should we not, as believers, show that same kind of goodness and love and care and concern for those around us? Be therefore perfect. Don't let there be any limit to your goodness. Be mature. You want to, listen, I'll put it to you this way. You want to know if you're a mature believer or not? I'll tell you how you can know if you're a mature believer or not. Live this out. I don't care how long you've been saved. I could care less. Pastor, I've been saved for 40 years. You could still be a babe. You want to know if you're a mature believer? Live this out. I'm a retired pastor, or I'm a pastor, or I'm on staff, or I'm a deacon, or I'm, I'm this, I'm that. I... God didn't say if you were this, that, and the other thing, you were a mature believer. You want to know if you're a mature believer? Live this out. That's how you know if you're a mature believer or not. Because it's only the mature believer that can live this out. Because they realize that they're dependent upon God and God alone. Because this isn't natural, folks. It's just not natural. But it is possible because of what Christ has done for us. If we were to review your week this past week and the conflicts and the difficulties that you had, and we all have them, would those who would be viewing the film of your past week be able to say that you live this out, that you bless those that cursed you, that you did good to those who hated you, that you prayed for those that spitefully used you and persecuted you. You know, Pastor, I didn't have any of that. Okay, then how did you handle your tiffs and tats within your family then? Because if that's the way that you should handle your enemies, you should have no problem with the interpersonal relationships of your home. See, when you start living like this, guess what? It really solves a whole lot of problems. 
It doesn't mean that they go away, but it really helps you through a whole lot of problems. But pastor, you just don't know. No, you know what? We just don't know. You say, what do you mean? We can read all we want about the crucifixion of Christ. We can read all we want about Gethsemane, but we will never know the full extent to what our Savior went through. We will never know. You just don't know. No, we just don't know. And if he was willing to go through that for us, somebody who may malign your character, may walk all over you, may quote-unquote um, proverbially spit in your face, not treat you right, that's nothing compared to what Christ went through. So how are you living out this righteousness? World standard, love those who love you. God's standard, love all, including your enemies. The immature believer would be over here. The mature believer would be here. Now, when you get to the point where you have this conflict and you fail, because you will, because I will, don't give up. Don't let Satan use that to beat you up. It's just an indication to say, Lord, I need to grow. Would you help me to grow? Would you help me to live righteously the way that you've asked me to live? And when you succeed, because you'll succeed at times at doing this. Don't pat yourself on the back and get a big head. Hey, man, I'm a mature believer now. That's a really good sign that you're probably not. You say, well, then what should I do then? Thank the Lord for his graciousness because you could have gone the other way. Say, Lord, thank you for being gracious. I don't know how I did that. The only way I know that I did that was through your strength and your power. Lord, help me to continue to do that, depend upon you. So what standard of righteousness are you living by? The world standard or God's standard?